Welcome to the CEO.Digital Show. My name's Craig McCartney. And I'm Darcy Thompson-Fields. And this is an open exploration of technologies and trends straight from the C-suites. You'll hear insights that will help you better deliver results for your company and its stakeholders now and in the future. You can find out more and stay up to date at CEO.Digital. This week's episode features Matt Kixmuller from Pure Storage. I was unable to make it, but um, Darcy led the way and I'm keen to hear more about what you two spoke about. Yeah, it was a great interview with Matt Kixmuller, also known as Kix. And, you know, we got into loads of really interesting insights, particularly on the storage space and what senior executives need to be focusing on. But a particular highlight for me was hearing Kix's very classic Silicon Valley journey. He started in the technology industry very young and has actually been with Pure Storage from the beginning. So loads of insights to get into. So I think we should crack on with the interview. Let's do it. Our guest this week is Matt Kixmuller, also more commonly known as Kix. Kix is Vice President of Strategy at Pure Storage, where for just over a decade he has been working to chart the strategic direction and growth. The company itself is the market-defining all-flash enterprise array company and has enjoyed great success since its inception in the late noughties, going from a zero-dollar business to a billion-dollar enterprise and beyond. Kix previously worked at Semantic and Gemini Consulting, and we're about to find out a lot more about him. Kix, welcome to the CEO.Digital show. Thanks so much, Darcy, and thanks all for joining Thank you. So you have had a classic entrepreneurial experience in your early career. Can you tell us a little more about that and your career journey from there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, I kind of had a, a very classic Silicon Valley story where I graduated from college in uh, in the late 90s and it was the gold rush. So I kind of found my way out to Silicon Valley, uh, did a few things out here. But before long, uh, a few of my friends from MIT who hadn't even graduated yet called me up and were in the process of trying to start a company and uh, actually participated in a contest that was going on there for venture funding. And uh, won that contest. One of the great things about the contest, though, is all the VCs watch it. So uh, we got you know venture funding from a top-tier VC. Everybody flew out to California, and we started the company. Um, I think I, at, at 21 or 22 years old, was uh, by a few years the oldest person in the company. Amazing. And so we, uh, yeah, fumbled around a bit here and there, uh, pivoted the company a few times, but you know, ultimately just learned a ton through the process, and and in that case, uh, got deep into peer-to-peer distributed monitoring of internet data centers. And so uh, learned a ton, and I, I look back on it with uh, awe around all I learned and a little bit of embarrassment about all the mistakes we made. But you know, it was super foundational, and you know, rolled out of that into a storage company called Veritas that was eventually acquired by Symantec. And, uh, you know, that was awesome because, you know, not only did I learn a ton there, but I, I met the co-founder of, of Pure there, John Colgrove. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as uh, I also kind of saw this experience at Veritas uh, around backup where the world transitioned from tape backup to disk backup. And so when this whole flash thing started, um, you know, the same light bulb moment happened and we said, man, I think all enterprise storage is going to go to flash. You know, we just want to be a, a company that can, uh, can, can define that and ride that wave. And so, uh, you know, that ultimately brought uh, us together to start Pure, and uh, it's been a great, you know, decade plus since. 
Perfect. Thank you. Well, yeah, moving on to Pure Storage, can you tell us a little bit more about the company itself, your journey so far, and specifically what you do at the company? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, when we started Pure, as I was just saying, uh, Flash had just come on the scene and it was an interesting time where most people had Flash in their cell phones and the iPod. So they were experiencing it in their consumer lives. Um, but most enterprise data centers were still full of big refrigerators, full of inefficient spinning disk. And at the time, Flash was about 25 bucks a gig. And so there were a few different storage companies who were trying to make super fast, you know, Ferrari-esque, uh, you know, Flash systems that were really expensive. And the founders of Pure basically said, look, let's just, uh, you know, go for mainstream. You know, we think over the next decade, this is going to be the dominant storage technology. So let's dedicate ourselves to figuring out how we make this uh, uh, kind of a democratized technology. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think the other thing that we did along the way was we said, look, you know, this, this kind of just a flash thing is a nice excuse to just go and build a better storage company. And I remember talking to our early customers and, and people who we bounced ideas off at the time. We just noticed that everybody seemed to hate their storage company. <laughs> and, you know, and so, uh, you know, we not only looked at how we can innovate, you know, the technology itself, but we looked about how we can change the business model of storage. We looked at how we can deliver a much better customer experience, you know, with, uh, with technology. And so we really just tried to take a 360 view on how do we build a better storage company that mm. happens to be powered by Flash. And, you know, that combination of both the technology, but also just the culture of the company uh, and, and just treating customers right and, and, and rethinking the experience, I think, was key to our success. Makes sense. And you've talked already a little bit about kind of the challenges that you've previously solved for your customers um, and, you know, the challenges you're helping your clients overcome. But what is the real kind of focus uh, you're assisting your clients with now? And what do you think you'll be focusing on in the future? Yeah. So if I look at the early days of flash storage, it was all about application performance. You know, people brought in this high performance storage medium to make their, you know, mission critical business systems go faster, respond to customers faster, et cetera. But I think along the way, one of the things they realized was it was just way simpler and it didn't fail. Mm -hmm. And so uh, not only did it speed things up, but it, it alleviated a whole host of kind of management challenges and, and pain that existed in the storage industry before. And as we now kind of roll into the era of, uh, of the cloud operational model, where people want to run their IT environments in the cloud model, you know, what that basically means is, is automation and as a service delivery and standardization on, on a, a few key service tiers that you basically, you know, deliver at very high scale. And, you know, it turns out that simplicity is key for that. You know, you just, you can't automate uh, in a cloud experience something that's painfully complex and cumbersome. And so a lot of what we've done now is transition from helping customers make their highest end applications performant to really transitioning how they run their entire data center into an as a service, you know, kind of cloud-like experience. And, uh, you know, that ultimately comes down to delivering Flash at large scale and automating its delivery in a storage as a service model. Amazing. Well, yeah, it seems like Pure is definitely quite a forward-thinking organization, but can we delve a little more into kind of your strategic role uh, and, you know, what your vision for the company looks like? Yeah, you know, I, I have a fun role at Pure where I get to look at kind of the next decade and say, you know, uh, we're, we've always been all about growth. We've been the fastest growing storage company ever. And, and you know, we want to continue to invest in getting into new areas. And so, you know, a huge part of that right now is just looking at the, the new world of, of modern applications and in particular cloud native applications. 
And these applications tend to be deployed in containers, and they're uh, you know requiring a very different experience from a storage point of view. And so, a, a big part of what we're focusing on at Pure is how are we making sure that we're not just kind of helping people solve the the challenges of traditional applications, which, by the way, are still very important. Those applications mm-hmm. aren't going away, and so continuing to deliver those reliably and reduce their cost is a, is a key part of our our business. But we also want to be strategic towards the next generation set of applications that the people are deploying. And that's cloud native apps that tend to run in containers and tend to be built in a way uh, that help them seamlessly move between on-prem and cloud and, and different cloud providers. And so that turns out to be a, a whole different um, you know, set of requirements from the storage point of view. And it goes without saying that over the past year, we've obviously all experienced massive disruption, but this disruption has actually accelerated the shift to cloud-based operations through the need for kind of distributed workforces and even personally for people to be connected um, as we are all uh, kept apart. So what are the market trends that you've seen in this space as a reflection of this? Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's definitely just accelerated all types of companies' digital agendas. And so, you know, companies have either had to hit the gas on their digital strategy or invent one if they didn't have one before because they had to meet customers in different ways. Um, but I think it's also just changed for companies, you know, how they run infrastructure. And they basically said, look, you know, I, I can't rely on on the, the human crutch in my infrastructure operations anymore. Um, I truly have to build this as a cloud operation, which means it's hands off, which means it's automated. And so just that one metric of the growth of automation has been huge. Um, you know, I look back uh, five years ago and the average pure customer did most of the management by pointing and clicking on a GUI somewhere. And we, you know, worked hard to make that a really seamless and easy experience. But the rise of automation, even pre-COVID, but accelerated mm-hmm. now with COVID has, has just skyrocketed where folks are realizing that, you know, if, if they can automate things, it actually makes it scalable, but also more reliable because you're not you know, having a human in the middle that might make mistakes and and might not be available. Definitely. And, you know, it does feel like this shift means that we are moving towards a more cloud native world. What does that mean for businesses? And can you touch on what that means for containerized apps and how these may need to change? Um, Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, I I think the key around the new cloud native apps and, and containerized world is that this is all about building software more efficiently. You know, if you think about digital transformation, at the end of the day, it's it's the software foundation that a cust- that a, a company builds and, and uses that platform to interact with customers. And so, you, you know, ultimately, then, if you're an IT organization or a technology company, um, the the speed and effectiveness of my developers, my DevOps team, is actually you know my biggest weapon. And so, you know, I think it's it's turned the tables such that IT has started to realize that. Empowering that DevOps team, empowering those developers is actually my number one job. And, you know, if you rewind or rewound 10 years ago, um, people might have thought about it as uh, a lot of roadblocks, a lot of, mm-hmm. you know, kind of uh, caging people in so they're not doing things that put the company at risk. Um, but the DevOps team made it pretty clear that if IT doesn't solve their needs, they're going to go to cloud and get it done however they, however they need to, right? Yeah. And so I've seen a massive shift in that mindset from IT of, of now really looking at DevOps as, the key customer and thinking about, you know, how do I empower that customer and, you know, give them wings uh, versus, you know, try to think about roadblocks in their way. That's really interesting, actually, touching on that kind of change in IT and DevOps relationship. And, you know, something I haven't haven't really heard much about before. Can we dive a bit more into that and then maybe also touch on how kind of 
from a leadership perspective, we can ensure that the roles and relationships of IT and DevOps are where they need to be to allow this transformation, enable this change. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we're right on the cusp right now of um, many companies and organizations set up DevOps teams and gave a lot of autonomy to individual development groups within the organization to kind of do what they wanted. And they went out and found better and more flexible ways of doing things. Yeah. But now as that is being scaled across the enterprise, um, there's value in setting up standardization and a platform. And so, you know, what we see, for example, in the world of, of Kubernetes and cloud native applications and containers is that many people deployed Kubernetes to get certain applications brought to market in, in different divisions within a company. And now IT is starting to stand up and say, okay, let's centralize these. Let's build a container as a service. Let's build a shared Kubernetes environment so I can take all of your requirements and build a platform that you can all use centrally that's much more efficient. And so I think what that is uh, uh, kind of requiring from the, uh, the, the relationship point of view is much more teaming now between DevOps and IT Mm-hmm. So the DevOps can really, you know, kind of articulate the requirements to IT clearly. So they, they kind of know how to build a centralized platform and, and what it's got to do. And then, you know, from an IT point of view, it's it's understanding that this is a demanding customer. And, you know, they always have this option of going to the public cloud and you know, doing whatever they want there. And so I need to work hard to meet their needs and to be flexible and to, and to really build a platform. Uh, that they want to use because I'm not going to be able to force them to use it. I need to be able to encourage them to use it. It's more carrot versus stick. Uh, and so I, I've seen a lot of change in, in how ITs um, embrace that relationship as a chance to really up their game and, and, and build a platform for the organization that everybody's excited to use. Mm. I mean, going back to public cloud, um, you know, I think public cloud services are forecast to grow at 18.4% this year to a total of 304.9 billion, according to Gartner. I mean, that kind of market growth is phenomenal. But what challenges does that kind of growth bring from an operational standpoint and also from a sustainability view? Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, what I would say is that the the maturity IT has had towards cloud has really evolved. You know, five years ago, a lot of people were trying to use their first cloud, trying to get to cloud. Uh, there was a all-in on cloud mentality or cloud-first mentality. And now I think there's really a, a balance where people are realizing that they don't want to just use one cloud provider. They want to use many. They want to have on-prem as well and run on-prem like the cloud. And the choices that they make in terms of how they build their applications and the architecture actually have a huge impact on you know that flexibility. Will they get locked into a single cloud? Will they get stuck on-prem? Or they, well, they build things in a way that gives them choice. And you know, this is actually a huge driver of the whole Kubernetes and containerization movement, mm-hmm. is it's a way to build and package applications in a way that makes them portable between multiple clouds. But I think what people quickly start to understand is that the, the hard part there actually is data. Because data has gravity, data is big, it's hard to move, and that's where a lot of the lock-in actually occurs. And so one of the big things Pure is really, you know, trying to educate customers on is, is just to be thoughtful around their architecture choices around data. So it gives them that flexibility to, you know, uh, really take advantage of the promise of containerization. Amazing. And how can organizations ensure that they have a kind of sustainable attitude to data from the beginning of their when thinking about their sort of infrastructure and their setup? You know, I I think one of the things that is um, really key to the mindset of Kubernetes, that the application is no longer tied to infrastructure. And Mm -hmm. the old way to think about data was, I'm going to have a rigid application that's going to be on these servers, and I'm going to connect some storage up to it, and that'll be a thing that I protect. In the new world of of Kubernetes and and containers, 
Um, applications change, evolve, grow, shrink, move around between infrastructure and aren't tied to one server versus another anymore. And so the data layer has to be just as flexible. And so, you know, at Pure, um, we actually acquired a company called Portworks, which builds a container native storage solution that kind of brings that same level of flexibility to the container world, such that storage capabilities um, are software instead of hardware and can kind of move with that application, whether that app is on-prem today, in the cloud tomorrow, and, and just you know changes through its life cycle. And so you know, I, I think the key thing is to, to really think about a, a much different level of, of flexibility and change rate from the old kind of hardwired storage architectures of the past. And you know, on this topic, I know you're working with our sister brand, Chief Wine Officer, to host an event on Tuesday the 27th of April for for the UK audience, uh, which our listeners can absolutely register for by visiting the Chief Wine Officer site. Um, So the kind of the theme of that event, uh, you're going to talk about how to redefine data strategy within cloud native architecture. Can you give us a few kind of insights, a, a bit of a teaser of what you're going to be discussing on the day? Yeah, I mean, I think we've gotten into a lot of it today already, but I think the main topic is really just going to be thinking about how this new world is different and what that means from a storage point of view, you know, the new requirements of storage to support containers and, and the, the new demands of DevOps. And, you know, to make it practical, you know, it's not mm-hmm. something that people snap their fingers overnight and have this whole new world. It's a journey. And so, you know, you don't have to be daunted by it. There's you know ways to start small to, you know, bring up uh, new container environments to, to work with your existing infrastructure and to evolve into it. And so, you know, we'll just talk a little bit about that evolution, that roadmap or journey and, uh, and how to get started because, you know, really getting started is the most important first step. Absolutely. Um, more generally, I do feel like there's a big mind shift happening now, you know, something that's been boiling for a while, but is now in full swing. And that is IT and tech thinking like a service. I just want to pick your brain on if there is more tech leaders can be doing to facilitate that transition to a service bureau rather than an on-prem team that alone may often not have the capacity to deliver what enterprise needs. Yeah, I think it's a it's absolutely a trend, and I love when I you know see these days. I'll talk to customers, and five years ago I might have met a storage admin and a storage architect, and now that same person is introducing him or herself as you know, I'm the storage services leader at this organization. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, and and so that mindset has already started to happen. And so I think that's, you know, first of all, a, a top-down mindset of leadership in the organization is saying, we're going to run as a service. And that means we need to, you know, define standardized services, automate them, et cetera. But, you know, when I look at the, the dimensions of that, I think there's three big chunks. Um, you know, the first is to run as a service. And that means investing in automation and standardization. The second is to deliver as a service, and that really means to you know plumb that through in an automated fashion to your end customers. You know, make storage or infrastructure available as code, so they don't have to call people to get it; they can just have it at their fingertips. And then the final thing is is really to procure or buy as a service. And so many vendors, pure included, now offer ways to consume storage um, as a, as a customer upstream uh, in an as a service way. So you're not buying a, an asset that, that might be on your books for five years. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you can buy as a service and then pass it through and sell as a service to your own internal customers. And that just kind of aligns the incentives throughout the whole chain. And you touched on automation there and you have done throughout the episode. I think automation seems to be a topic that some leaders are embracing more than others and that some workforces are wary of. 
how do you think automation can work to enhance uh, enterprises? Do you think it's something that's going to empower technology leaders? Do you think it's something to be wary of? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's something that's, especially for storage folks, a, a very different mindset. You know, the, the old world was, I'm a storage admin, I'll contact the person running the application, and we'll talk about what storage you need, and, and we'll figure it out together. And, you know, that's just not fast enough in the new world, right? We just need standardized offerings that people can consume and, and move on with life. And, you know, one of the, the litmus tests I like to use with customers is to ask, look, you know, your own internal customers, do they know your name? Because if they know your name and they have to call you, you're probably doing something wrong, right? You, you need to really invest in, in, in automation and making this into a true service experience. And I, I think the thing that, that really starts to hit people is the change rate in these new containerized cloud native environments. Um, if you look at a traditional environment, the whole mindset was I'm gonna build something and I'm not gonna touch it for years. And you know, it, it's just gonna be very rock solid. And you know, uh, it wouldn't be uncommon, for example, for one of our arrays in a traditional world to only have a handful of administrative actions taken on it a day or even a week. Um, if you look at a, a big cloud native customer of ours, they might have 10 or 100,000 provisioning actions per day where a container comes up, gets some storage, puts it back. And so, you know, there's no way you can hand code, you know, 100,000 storage actions a day. You have to have automation. And so once people start to understand the, the, the kind of uh, fluidity and change rate of this new environment, automation becomes kind of obvious. You just, you just have to invest in it. Makes sense. I'd just like to take a bit of a step back here because many of our listeners are leaders across IT, but also more widely across the C-suite. So if you could say one thing and have one key takeaway on storage today to to offer the C-suite, what would it be? You know, at the end of the day, um, all things that are, are technical related um, revolve around talent. And, you know, I think the, the long-term success of an organization, whether it be a startup uh, or an early stage company like Pure or a large technology organization in, in, a, in a CIO type role, um, you know, you live and die by the quality of your talent in that pipeline. And, you know, one of the most important things to attract talent is to have exciting things to work on. And so, you know, there's always plenty of things we have to do to keep the shop running and, and to work on the existing applications and all this stuff that exists. But, you know, if you can find a way to carve around time in every role for innovation, uh, it, it really encourages and, and allows you to attract talent that you wouldn't uh, be able to otherwise. And so, you know, I think that um, sometimes I hear folks say, look, I just, you know, I, I'm being brought down by the mundane and I don't have time to innovate and whatnot. But, um, you know, I, I think if you, if you want to have a healthy talent pipeline, you, you almost have to think the inverse and say, I'm going to carve off time to innovate and do things that are challenging and, and giving people the space to really pursue innovation projects. And, you know, we'll keep the lights on with whatever time is left. And that still might be 90% of the time that, that we have to do to, have to keep the lights on type stuff. But, you know, that, that, that kind of keeping that innovation time budget and, and, and actual budget sacred um, is, is pretty key for attracting talent. Definitely. Yeah, that's such a good takeaway. And obviously, the technology talent war is something we've been talking about for years. Um, do you see this as something that is getting more difficult? Do you think, you know, more companies are siphoning off technology leaders as kind of organizations across industries realize that they need technology talent to help their business grow? Or, you know, is that balanced out by the kind of new talent uh, that are graduating that are kind of coming onto the market? 
Um, you know, I, look, I think there's always a, a, a talent shortage, um, but there's two ways to, to get talent, right? There's, there's a way to hire new folks and, and bet on people who are early in their careers and, and uh, you know, ready to dive in. Um, but there's also the opportunity to give people chances to learn new stuff. And, you know, I, one of the things in the storage industry that, that people always told us in the early days of Pure was, hey, um, you know, you, you don't want to, you know, push automation or change because, you know, people's jobs are wrapped up in, you know, being the one person who could do this one task. And what we found in general was that absolutely was not the case. If we could make storage easier, then they didn't have to spend all this low value time babysitting it. And they could actually focus on learning new stuff that matters. And, you know, and so when you give people the time and the opportunity to learn new things, they're technologists, they want to learn new stuff. And when there's something new like containers and Kubernetes, one of the big advantages is that it's so new that no one's all that far behind. And so, you know, if you came today and said, I want to become, you know, one of the foremost experts in the world on, you know, the Oracle database. Well, you know, that's been around for 20 plus years. And so there's, there's a whole host of people out there who have decades of experience in it. It's going to be hard to catch up with them. But in this new world, you know, the tech's only been around for a couple of years at most. And so even someone starting new becomes to be very quickly and be very, very relevant in the market. And so giving them that opportunity to innovate and, and to learn something new uh, is a key way to grow that internal talent. Perfect. Yeah, thank you for that. You've already given us some great insights on how you would kind of inspire and grow a team. But I mean, more generally, what do you think are the qualities of a successful and strategic leader? And, you know, are there any of those that you think, you know, you embody or, or try to kind of personally grow in? Um, I guess there are a few things I'd say, you know, one of the key things is just, you know, balancing the urgent versus the important. And I, I kind of said this a little bit before, but, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, it's very easy to get kind of sidelined by things that are urgent, but not have the time to focus on the long-term important needs of the organization. And that's you know key for a, a leader. And, you know, I think personally, another thing I've always tried to focus on is to, to really be the person that um, is hands-on in the details. So I know the day-to-day -day struggles of, of my organization, but to be able to step back and really, you know, uh, invite people to think long-term, to think strategically, to think blue sky, because oftentimes people don't feel like they have the permission to do so. You know, they have to meet these deadlines and do these things. But if you can create space where you can have meetings and, and just, you know, brainstorm about the future, talk about what we should be doing, throw out crazy ideas, um, creating a permission to have that kind of a discussion really unlocks the creativity of the organization. And so, you know, as a leader, it's not about um, necessarily throwing out all the innovative ideas. It's about creating a culture and, and, and a space where, you know, you get people to, to generate those and, and those, you know, grow and thrive. Perfect. And I mean, you yourself, you've obviously had a very successful career and you mentioned earlier that you've had the kind of almost typical Silicon Valley experience. Um, so tell me a little bit more about, you know, what the early influences were that led to your success. But also I'd be interested here in kind of what you think of Silicon Valley today and if that same sort of entrepreneurial experience and opportunity is still available for kind of young upstarts. Mm. Well, I guess the first thing I'd say is that if I look back in history, um, big tech transitions actually happen really fast. And mm -hmm. in the moment, you know, it doesn't feel fast. But the, uh, you know, you look back, for example, at, at, say, the rise of virtualization and VMware. I mean, that was really quick how, how soon we went from, you know, physical servers to everything being virtualized. And in my history, um, I saw a few of these transitions. You know, I, I spent a few years early, early in my career working for a company called Adaptech, and they used to be the kings of, ICE, of SCSI, which was how you connected anything to a computer. 
And, you know, at the low end that got replaced by USB and at the high end that got replaced by fiber channel and long story short, Adaptech missed both those transitions. And now most people probably haven't heard of them. Um, you know, I saw a similar thing happen at Veritas with, you know, uh, tape backup, disk based backup. And that was a major transition that, that upset that world and, and created the opportunity. And of course, with disk and flash. And, you know, I think what, um, what I took away from those transitions was, you know, number one, you want to be on the right side. And if you, if you miss one of those transitions, um, it's easy to, uh, to, to, to go down uh, as a vendor. Mm. But on the flip side, you know, it's, it's really an opportunity to hit the reset button and think about a new architecture. And whenever a transition like that happens, if you look back in history, almost always the vendor who emerges as the winner is someone who really embraced that and said, this is fundamentally different. We need to do it in a different way and have the courage to do it. Because oftentimes, you know, it's it's enticing to say, ah, yeah, my current thing, I can just, you know, add a few bells and whistles. We can teach this dog some new tricks. But the reality is um, oftentimes a much more purpose-built architecture is key. And, you know, that was the insight that helped us create Pure. We built something, you know, fresh for Flash that had none of the, the compromises of disk. Um, it's why, as a company, we bought Portworks because that was a similar ground-up design for, you know, the container and cloud-native storage world. And so, you know, I, I think the advice piece of that is, Look at those transitions, make sure you're betting on the right side of it, but use it as an opportunity to really think about, is this the right architecture? Is this the right platform for the future? Or is this an opportunity to hit the reset button and build something new and start differently? And then as far as, uh, you know, your question about is, is Silicon Valley, um, you know, still alive and well and vibrant? You know, absolutely. Um, there just seems to be no shortage of uh, all the ingredients in terms of entrepreneurial people, venture capital, everything you need to be able to, to get things up and going. And so... Absolutely. If, uh, if, if you're entrepreneurially minded, uh, you know, uh, it's, there's never been a better time. Amazing. Thank you. All right. Well, we'll close things off with our quick fire rounds. We're just going to throw some quick questions at you. And if you can, yeah, shoot some quick uh, answers back. So I just want to start off by asking you, what is your technology guilty pleasure? Uh, it's got to be gadgets and, you know, mostly in, uh, in the world of photography and whatnot these days. But I also do some woodworking. And so I enjoy uh, kind of modern versions of tools and, and, you know, both learning how to do things with old tools and kind of new ways of doing things. Oh, nice. Kept you occupied during quarantine then. Absolutely. And then I'm going to ask you, how would your family describe what you do? Um, I think my family basically, especially these days during COVID, thinks I just, you know, hang out in our extra bedroom and, you know, talk on the phone all day. <laughs> yeah, I think that's all, <laughs> all of us at the moment. Are there any kind of books, podcasts, TV shows you're enjoying right now that you think the rest of the world should too? Uh, you know, one of my one of my other hobbies, in addition to you know watching way too many YouTube videos about woodworking, uh, is I I do some watch collecting, and I like to lo both learn about uh, how watches work, and then you know the history, and and then you know the modern version of that as it evolves. So there's a a great podcast called The Gray NATO, which is loosely about watches, but it's mostly about adventure and just uh, how people you know um, go out in the world and use various gear watches included uh, to to make the most of life and so it's it's kind of a, a fun adventure centric podcast that uh, I think uh, tilts towards people who who like to get out of their house and, and spend time outdoors um, but appreciate gear as well amazing we have to check that out and just finally, before we close things off, I just want to leave our listeners with this last question, which is what are the top one or two issues that you're working on that are top of mind today? 
Um, you know, I think for for us, um, the, the the top issue really is helping customers transform their model to storage as a service. Uh, you know, it's something that the industry has been talking about for a few decades, um, but it's finally becoming real. You know, people are investing in automation. They're thinking like the cloud. They're really transforming their on-prem operations. And so, you know, we as a vendor are, are trying to not just give them advice, but actually, you know, build that experience into our products themselves and make that easier for customers. So that's a big piece of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second piece is, you know, helping them devise, you know, storage strategies for, you know, cloud native applications and getting people to really think differently. You know, it's, it's it, could you take your legacy storage and kind of connect it to my container environment and get something working? Yeah, you could, but that's not really what that environment wants. That's not really investing in a platform that's going to be the future of the applications of, of your company. And so helping people, you know, inspire some new thinking and, and really, you know, go to a clean whiteboard and, and, and chart the future here is, uh, is, is a key area we're trying to, to help customers think through. Amazing. Thanks, Kix. You've certainly given me a new way of thinking about storage myself, and I'm sure you have for our listeners too. Matt Kixmuller, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Darcy, and thanks all for listening. Listeners, if you'd like to hear more of Kix, you can attend our Chief Wine Officer event, Redefine How You Handle Data with Cloud Native Architecture. And that's taking place on Tuesday, the 27th of April, virtually, of course, and you can register on the Chief Wine Officer website. If you enjoyed this conversation, then please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much for your time.